Trevor. Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been working our way for the last six weeks through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, tonight we're up to the sixth and the final petition. So we've looked at Hallowed Be Your Name, Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done. Uh, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, but tonight we turn our attention to the petition that addresses an issue we all struggle with. Irrespective of age or stage of life, or whether you've been a Christian for 20 years, 20 days, or even if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, temptation is a constant experience of every human being. And each one of us sitting in this building is tempted on a daily basis. The levels vary. The particular temptations are probably different, or at least they appear to be different. But we all know what it means to face temptation. And so whenever we come to a phrase like this and lead us not into temptation, it resonates. It immediately strikes a chord. This is relevant. And I'll guarantee you that within the past 24, 48 hours, we've all found ourselves in situations where we've had a choice to make, a decision to take, to do something, say something, think something, be something, that we know or we sense is just not quite right. And that's what temptation is. It's the desire to do something you know you should avoid, that you know you'll probably regret, that you know that you'll more than likely feel slightly guilty about. So it's the temptation to move the golf ball just slightly to give you a better lie. It's the temptation to eat too much, to drink too much, to spend too much, to say too much. It's the temptation to check out that website just one more time. The temptation to watch that particular channel. The temptation to pursue that inappropriate relationship. It's the temptation to twist the truth. It's the temptation to lie about your age. To get you in somewhere. Temptation to lose your temper. Whenever someone does something that you really wish they hadn't done. And you have a choice to make at that moment. Do I lose it? What do I do? It's the temptation to doubt God. The temptation to ditch your faith. The temptation to turn your back in church. And I could go on giving examples, and every time I do, there'll be somebody else thinking, yep, I've been there, or I'm there at the moment, or I know that I'm going to be there tomorrow. And so the relevance for every Christian needing to pray and lead us not into temptation is unquestionable. But what are we actually praying whenever we use this phrase? Now, I know that some of you will be aware that there are at least a couple of different angles that you can take on this. I may attempt to address both of them. I'm certainly going to attempt to address one of them. See how time goes. may leave the other one until next week. But for now, let me stick with the core issue of temptation as we understanding it, understand it, recognizing the fact that we desperately need help in how to deal with it. And the first thing I want to say is that temptation is inevitable. We cannot live without it. Nobody can live without temptation. And so one of the most fundamental things I need to say this evening is that temptation in itself is not sin. Every golfer is tempted to cheat. Every bloke is tempted to lust. Every person is tempted to lie. Every Christian is tempted 
to doubt God. Temptation in itself is not sin. The immediate and sometimes long-term damage to our spiritual health only takes place whenever we give in. Whenever we succumb to the temptation. And so this prayer is not to be kept from temptation because that's virtually impossible. But the prayer is a heartfelt cry to Almighty God to keep us in temptation. In other words, it's a plea for divine help to cope with and to resist the pressure to cave in. We know that Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he didn't sin according to Hebrews 4. And therefore, temptation isn't sin, but yielding to it is. And for some of you, that cues the hymn in your head. Yield not the temptation, for yielding is sin. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. And although it may seem like that, the truth is we can resist. We can resist. We don't have to give in. We don't have to give up. But we cannot do it on our own. We need the help of our Father in heaven. And therefore, the necessity to pray with sincerity, lead us not into temptation, is acute. Now, although a temptation-free life is, is not on offer, it never will be, we can reduce the intensity to a certain extent. Because let's be honest, we all know, I know, there are certain sins that keep tripping me up. Certain patterns of behavior that keep reoccurring. Certain temptations that I seem less able to resist than others. And therefore we need to be wise, we need to be discerning, maybe even we need to be ruthless about not putting ourselves in the vulnerable positions where temptation is an absolute given and caving in is really quite possible. And we all know that. And we all know those areas in our own lives. And so if you struggle with, for example, late night television, don't watch it on your own after a certain time. Martin Luther once said, you can't, it's a familiar phrase, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Or to put it another way, find out what for you is fire, and then don't play with it. And on one occasion, which turned out to be an incredibly significant occasion, Jesus offered two very direct pieces of advice when it comes to this issue. And we've already referred to this occasion this evening. We've sang about it and it occurs near the end of Jesus' earthly life. And he's taken a few of his disciples into a local garden. Because one, he needs the company. But secondly, the reality of what lies ahead of him begins to weigh heavily upon him. And so Jesus leaves his disciples for a while. But when he comes back, he finds them asleep. And then he says this to them, watch and pray. So that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the body is weak. Watch and pray. You see, none of us intend to give in to temptation, I don't think. We often resolve to stay strong. I mean, as we confess our sins before taking communion, we don't plan to mess up again. I don't plan to mess up again. I sincerely prayed those words from Daniel 9. I'm sure you did as well. But the spirit is willing, but unfortunately I am. The body is weak, and therefore I need to watch. In other words, I need to be aware of those situations, of that environment, of those influences that have this tendency to expose me to temptation that keeps tripping me up. 
So in a sense, Jesus says, be on your guard. Watch. And secondly, pray. Because prayer is, as we know, one of our greatest privileges, as well as one of the most essential disciplines in the Christian life. We can pray. We should pray. We must pray. I need to pray the Lord's Prayer every single day. Day. I need God's help 24-7 if I'm going to avoid being charmed off course by all the temptations that crash into my life day in and day out. My natural ability to mess up is frightening. And like Paul, all, all the good things I know I should be doing are the very things I don't do. And all the things I really wish I didn't do, I seem to just keep doing them. Spirit's willing, but the body is weak. And therefore, without God's strength, without a real acute sense of awareness of God's presence, I'm going to compromise my faith. And I risk heading for spiritual shipwreck. And whenever prayer is is not a daily constant, whenever it's not a regular activity, whenever it's not a holy habit, as we talked about a few months ago, then I risk, like the disciples, falling asleep. Not literally, but falling asleep. And whenever I do that as a Christian, the defences come down and it's almost certain that I'm going to capitulate the temptation. Back to the garden. Because Jesus left his disciples, it says, because he needed to go and pray. And I've always found that fascinating about Christ. Why did the Son of God need to pray? But he did. And Jesus was asking for his father's strength to do what was right, despite the inward reluctance. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And I don't want to take this too far, but isn't that why we need to pray? Father, help me to do the right thing today. In every circumstance, because in my own strength, I know I'll give in. And Jesus goes on and he prays. And when he comes back he finds that the disciples are asleep again. They don't take his advice. And therefore what we discover is in that moment because they haven't watched, because they haven't prayed, they're vulnerable. And so Peter ends up lashing out in a moment of anger. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And shortly afterwards he does the very thing I'll promise never to do, Jesus. I'll never deny you. And yet he does it. Three times. The temptation to retaliate, the temptation to disown, were staring Peter in the face and he crossed a line. And I just wonder if he had watched and if he had prayed instead of sleeping, if he had taken the advice of Jesus, because for whatever reason he chose not to, would things have been very different for Peter? Watch and pray. But the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer continues because it doesn't just end with lead us not into temptation. Well, it does in in Luke's account, but not in Matthew's. Because we are encouraged by Jesus to then pray for deliverance from evil. Or at least that's the version most of us know, most of us recite. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom. But actually have an NIV which is a a different and apparently a more accurate translation, it doesn't finish there. It says this, but deliver us from the evil one. See, the Bible is, is far from silent about the reality of evil in our world. And as we look around us, in fact, as we often look within us, 
None of us need to be convinced about the presence of evil and its influence on our lives. But one of the things we probably, and certainly the word generally downplays, is the reality of the personality behind evil. Evil is not faceless. Charles Baudelaire offers this insightful reflection. The devil's cleverest ruse or trick is to make men believe that he does not exist. And there are two dangers, there's two extremes we need to avoid when you come to consider the devil or Satan. Either we neglect him or we become preoccupied by him. Either we minimize his influence or we exaggerate his importance. And there's a real tension here. Satan is real. He is the face behind evil and he wants to destroy us. Whenever Jesus offered that final prayer that I referred to this morning, what did he pray to his father? Father, protect them from what? From the evil one. And Jesus was all too aware of Satan's ability to mess with our heads. He had experienced this firsthand during those 40 days of isolation in the desert. And Jesus knew the history of Satan. He knew about his twisted intent. Jesus knew about Satan's rebellion against the king of heaven. He knew about Satan's persuasive powers with Adam and Eve and how as a direct result of Satan's influence, sin and death gate-crashed God's party. And Jesus was all too aware of that. And Jesus also knew that God had promised a saviour who would bring Satan to absolute ruin, but as the evil one slithered away from the garden, Jesus also knew of his sick determination to stop the Saviour ever being born. And so all through the Old Testament, Satan tries to kill off the seed of the woman, so Cain murders Abel, and Esau comes after Jacob, and Saul tries to assassinate David, and Jesus knew that it was all part of the evil one's desperate attempt to abort God's plans. And in the fullness of time, the promised Saviour was born, but as I mentioned already, Satan tried to derail Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus resisted every temptation that was thrown at him, but Satan didn't give up. Yes, he he failed in a sense during those 40 days, but then we discover him skulking around in the shadows of the Gospels as he tries time and time again to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And he took his chance, and again we've heard about it tonight, he took his chance with Judas whenever he went to the Jewish authorities and his plan seemed to have worked a treat. As in rapid succession, Jesus is betrayed and then he's arrested and then he's beaten, he's crucified and he's buried. Except that we all know the rest of the story, but so does Satan. And so he may have bruised the Saviour's heel, but by his resurrection, Jesus gained this crushing victory over sin and death and the devil, but Jesus knows that the devil hasn't retreated away to some dark corner of the universe, just sitting it out until his final destruction. Yes, that's where he's heading, but that's not what he's about here and now. The evil one hasn't given up the fight. And so having failed to defeat Christ, he now stalks the earth like a lion trying to defeat us. You and I, 
the church. And he's relentless. And he's persistent. And he's crafty. And he's subtle. And he's deceptive. And so Jesus urges us to pray for protection. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us not just from evil, but from the evil one. And of all the enemy's strategies, temptation is still the oldest and the most effective weapon at his disposal. And so he uses it time and time again in your life and in mine, often to great effect. And another strategy of the devil lies in his ability to know when we are at our most vulnerable. He knows the opportune time to tempt us. The Bible makes it clear in in 2 Corinthians that we shouldn't be unaware of the devil's schemes. And yet at times I feel as if I am blissfully unaware. He knows what is fire for me. He knows what entices me. But let me just mention something about the issue of timing. As you engage with God's word and as you read the stories relating to incidents involving temptation in the lives of many of the key characters, there's a real common thread. There's a pattern that evolves and that runs right through. And Satan seems to turn up the heat whenever we are alone. It happens. Just read the Bible. It was whenever Jesus was in that place of aloneness that Satan showed up with those three piercing temptations. It, he waited until Eve was alone to launch his assault. It seems that David was alone on a rooftop, killing time, whenever the temptation to lust and covet what he didn't have became so intent. Joseph appears to have been alone whenever an older, attractive woman attempted to seduce him into her bed. The evil one is cunning. He is crafty. He knows when we're vulnerable. And we're very vulnerable when we are on our own. And late at night, maybe after a hard day at work, when we flick on the PC or crash in front of the box, that's often the environment where he steps in. Or it's when we're alone with a colleague at work. Or when we lie awake staring at the ceiling and the temptation to doubt the goodness of God all of a sudden kicks in. Satan's not stupid. And though we might think he wears Prada or we have characterized him as this little red creature with a pitchfork, he's phenomenally influential. He's incredibly streetwise. And whenever a, a church minister in Scotland read John Bunyan's Grace Abounding, he wrote this in his journal, I live as though Satan were a myth. And sometimes I wonder if that's how I live. Do I regularly pray for deliverance from the evil one? Do I, as Paul urges me to do, put on the full armour of God so that I can take my stand against the devil's schemes? Because quite honestly, I often think I just live my life as though this were just some little cartoon character. And I know that the battle against the world and the flesh is difficult enough, but the third source of temptation, the devil, makes the challenge even more extreme. Don't exaggerate his importance, please. But whatever you do, don't minimize his effectiveness. He's strong, and we are weak. So underestimate him, and we become easy prey. Let me just briefly deal with this petition from a slightly different angle as I close. 
And I'm sure some of you have been thinking this. And I'll guarantee you some of you have actually. Take a look at this phrase again. Let me ask you a question. Might even leave this quick. No, I'll not. Does this imply that God actually leads a Christian into temptation? Does this imply that God actually leads a a Christian into temptation? Back to the experience of Jesus in the desert. If you look at Luke 4 verse 1, it says there he was led by the Spirit into the desert. So, does God initiate temptation? Well, let me quickly set that alongside this verse from James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So in a sense, God's word explicitly answers our question. And therefore, the second perspective, or the second take, that as I say, I know some of you will have come across before when it comes to this petition, is the discovery that the Greek word used here for temptation can also mean a test or a trial. And as we all know, God in his sovereignty does allow those to intrude upon our lives. God does allow us to be tested and tried. And I realize there is so much I could say or should say about the reality of testing in the life of a Christian. The Bible is packed with examples of people who were tested, almost tested to the very limit. But the one thing I do want to say is that testing puts muscle on your soul. And I'm sure many of us enjoy watching sport, I know that I do, but in order for sportsmen and sportswomen to develop, they must engage in training programs that include constant testing in order to gauge their growth and their progress as athletes. And they learn from those tests and they become stronger as a result of being tested. And I'm sure you can make the connection, but in God's program for spiritual education, for spiritual growth and development, he does and he must test us regularly. And the purpose of God's testing is always constructive, although it's really hard to see it at the time. God doesn't test us to crush us. And so James got it right when he says these apparently ridiculous words. Consider it pure joy. I never do. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. But again, some of you may be thinking, well, how come if testing is so beneficial, we then pray, lead us not into testing and trials? That's a good question. And the best answer I can give you is this. That whenever God tests us for our good, Satan will invariably try to exploit the situation for our ruin. Think about it. Whenever you're going through a testing time, and some of you are probably there at the moment, but whenever you're going through a testing time, I will guarantee you that the enemy will show up and tempt you to doubt God's goodness. If God is so good, why are you going through that? Why are you hurting so badly if God is so good? And secondly, nobody in their right mind cries out, bring it on, God. It's probably why Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. He wasn't keen about the prospect of severe testing, but he was also able to pray, possibly through gritted teeth, 
yet. Not my will, but yours be done. And so we pray, lead us not into testing and trials, but when we're there, what we're actually saying is, God, Father, protect us from the evil one and help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to develop through this testing, which puts muscle on our soul. So to sum it all up, what I've been trying to say, temptations are given. You'll not avoid it. And therefore, you need to watch and pray. And do not underestimate the reality of evil. The reality of the evil one. Because he has the ability to seemingly derail your faith. And God doesn't tempt us. But he does test us. And it's always for our good.